Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. The world was looking for one king, but you came in a completely different way. Lord, I thank you that we are able to take part in that kingdom. We are able to be uh, stewards, Lord, of, of all that you have for us, all that we have, Lord, that we can follow you, that we can trust you, that we can know you. Lord, I ask that this week would be uh, especially moving on all of our hearts as we move into that Friday, uh, the Good Friday service that we'll have here. Lord, I ask that there will be tears There will be lives that will, just by looking at pictures, just by meditating on scripture, just just by being here with the brethren in community, that lives will be changed. We've heard the story so many times, but enliven our hearts again. Take off our blinders. Lord, we're not here to do the usual ritual. This isn't just another Palm Sunday. Next week is not just another Easter. It's not the same old thing. Things are changing rapidly before our eyes. Help us to awaken from our slumber. Help us to get into the race. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, but the violent take it by force. Not by being passive, not by being laid back. This is not a time to fall asleep. It's a time to wake up and take our place in the great battle. As the myriads of saints have done before, it's our turn. It is our time. Help us to seize the day, carpe diem. Help us to make our lives extraordinary, Father, because your mighty spirit lives in and through us. Have your way in us, O God. May we leave this place different than when we came in. Amen. I have a morbid question to open up this Palm Sunday message. If you wouldn't mind, I would like you to turn to the person next to you and tell them, answer this question. If you had to pick a last meal, again, pretty morbid. If you had to pick a last meal, what would it be? Go ahead. Talk to the person next to you. Think about it. Okay. (laughs) A lot of laughter. How many of you have never, ever thought of this before, right? Has anybody never thought of that question? You've never answered that before? I see a couple of hands. Are you a little scared that your pastor just asked that question? Open up a sermon? I think of this all the time. Now, let me tell you. I'll just give you my quick answer. Since I can't eat gluten, foods that have gluten in them, I would have a, it would be a, I'd just glut out on, on gluten. I would, I would stuff my face with as much gluten as I could find. With as many bagels that are in the back after the meeting, I would eat every single one of them. That's what I would have. Seriously. So I, I imagine there were some wonderful choices that you had had if you knew that it was going to be your last meal. There's a story of a man. His name is uh, Lawrence Brewer. I'm sure many of you have never heard of him before. A man from Texas who was executed in 2012. He was executed for a heinous crime. He uh, killed another man. He was actually a white supremacist, killed a black man. Uh, Terrible in the the manner in which he did this. And I don't think, though, that the inmates in this Texas prison that were housed with him where he was, I don't think they're going to remember the heinous crime that this man committed. You see, they're going to remember another thing. 
when it came to the choice for this individual a couple of years ago as to what he wanted in his last meal, I just have to put it up here. It's shocking. All right, this is what he ordered. This is a true story. Two chicken fried steaks, a triple meat bacon cheeseburger, fried okra, pound of barbecue with half a loaf of white bread, cheese omelet, ground beef, vegetables, three fajitas, meat lover's pizza, pint of ice cream, slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts, and three root beers to top it off. That's it? That's all he wanted? Well, here's the amazing part of his story. You see, when they they brought all of this food in, he looked at them and smiled and said, I don't want it. Texas would go on to change their law there, and they added a statute, and they said, no longer will people that are on death row in the state of Texas, no longer will you be able to pick what you want as your last meal. Whatever is on the menu, that is exactly what you're going to have. And it's wild when you look at some people, like famous people maybe that were executed. I probably spent too much time the past few weeks and just researching. There are even, this is kind of sick, there are artists out there. There's one artist that will recreate the meals of people that were on death row, whatever it was. And she will eat the meal and then she will draw a painting from that, the remnants of the meal. That's kind of odd, right? She may need to be institutionalized, but that's what she does. Here's a, how many of you remember the name Timothy McVeigh? Remember that? The Oklahoma City bombing killed over 150 people. Uh, He wanted two pints of chocolate chip mint ice cream. That's what he wanted. That's all he asked for. There was one man, I had never heard this name before. One man said, I just want one pitted olive on a plate, a big ceramic plate with a fork and a knife. Now, trying to get into the minds of some of the... um, more interesting characters, choosing my words carefully uh, from the pulpit, some of these interesting people, I I don't know why one would want that, but that's what he chose. And it's interesting because I think we in general have a fascination with last meals, don't we? No, maybe I'm the only one. Well, what I want to talk about this morning is the most famous of all last meals, The one last meal that we gather around every single Sunday. And you know what? You may know it as the Last Supper. I didn't give you the title of my sermon on purpose, but I'm calling it the First Supper. Because we as Christians eat this meal every single week. And some of you eat it more than once a week. You come to a Wednesday meeting. For centuries, Christians have been eating this meal. And I want to look at this one Jesus that we gather around in this Holy Week. And I want you to look at and see what the text, what the story has for us in our lives. But let me tell you up front, the Last Supper, you may think you know the Last Supper. I'm here to tell you today, you probably don't know as much as you think because I didn't. And I can say that up front in really spending a lot of time looking at the text and looking at what the synoptic gospels, especially Matthew, Mark and Luke, what they had to say. There's a lot that we can gain in our study of this. So we're going to extrapolate some, I think, wonderful things. Let me just say right off the bat, many of you are familiar with Da Vinci's Last Supper, right? Everybody has seen this before. This is how most Christians picture the Last Supper, is it not? I mean, that's, I kind of grew up thinking this is what it was like. Kind of like a, <laughs> I was laughing about it all week, kind of like a big Thanksgiving banquet. And can't you just picture somebody with like, a, obviously there's no camera there, but picture somebody like a camera and they're like, all right, Jesus, you get in the middle. Everybody else gets around and there's all this food here. And they're like, all right, Jesus, smile. Everyone smile. Everyone's kind of hanging out and there's food everywhere. And everyone's really happy, just like our Thanksgivings, right? That's what you think. 
Couldn't be anything further from the truth. You want to hear the history of this? I've been so excited to bring this. You know, well, if you know me and if you've been around here for any period of time, I just love the history and I love Jesus. And when you get into the real history of what happened, the stories come alive. So let's start. It is about sundown. And you know that the Last Supper takes place in an upper room. The upper room would be there in Jerusalem. The the text doesn't tell us, but this had to have been the home of a wealthy person, an affluent person, because they had an upper room on their house. I said it's about sundown. It is Passover time. We're going to get into that in a little while. But let me show you what the seating actually looked like. It is called a triclinium. And a triclinium, where they actually sat around for the Last Supper, again, is very different from what you see here in Da Vinci's Last Supper. It was actually three tables. I mean, there weren't a lot of pictures on the internet, but this is what I want you to see. You would have three tables. Let me use this one, even though it's a little the glare. You would have three tables here. One, two, and three. It would make it easy for the person that was serving at that meal that they could walk around and do what they needed to do if they needed to refill food. Now, I want you to notice, look at all of the people that are here. Where are they sitting? They're all on their left arms, on their left elbows. That's the way you sat, and you only ate with your right hand. You did not use your left hand. So you're sitting on your left side. You were relaxed. You were reclined. Why? Because you remembered what happened. This is Passover time. You remembered what happened thousands of years ago with the great exodus when the children of Israel were in slavery and you were supposed to be relaxed. So you're there on pillows or cushions. They were there behind you to help keep you relaxed and comfortable. Now, as we continue over here, you can look at the placement of people that is absolutely fascinating in this. Let me give you another picture, even though this is the next best one I can find on the Internet. But you don't, well, you see some cushions there. They're not relaxing. You know the story of the woman that washes Jesus' feet in uh, Luke 7, the penitent woman? I always picture that his feet, like she's under the table like there. And they're like, who's this crazy woman that's under the table? Your feet were, let me go back to the last slide again, your feet were out. So if your feet were laying out, it would have been very easy for her to have access to his feet to wash them. Luke talks about the washing, right? In Luke's, in Luke's gospel, you know, you see that, the washing of feet there, right? Yes, well, that, it would have been easy given the way people were positioned. Now, next slide again. This is absolutely fascinating. We can tell from scripture verses, and this is, Again, this, this started in really, the Romans started this. It's a Roman-style table. They were, you know, there may be different types of uh, triclinians, but they were always low-level tables, right? Always low-level tables. Now, the person on the left in this painting, again, it's hard to see here. This would have been Jesus. This is an artist's rendering of the Last Supper. Now, why do I bring this up? Because the person that was second on the left always is the host of the meal. Every single time, anytime there was a Passover, the host of the meal would sit in that seat. The person that is the person that is um, that is next to him right here on Jesus's right would have been John. The person on Jesus's left. I'm going to wait a second on that. Now, let me show you a scripture verse. Oh, I gave it to you. You weren't supposed to see that, but that's all right. Look at John 13, 23 and 24. Now there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Boom, done. Who do you know that is? It's John. Did you ever wonder what the heck is going on in this verse? 
Now you know why it makes sense, because you were always leaning on the bosom of the person that was next to you. So John, being the youngest of all the disciples, we know is on the right side. He's in a place of eminence. Jesus puts him here. He's the youngest. The youngest person also was the one that would always ask four questions at every single Passover. And the questions were based around, why is this night different from any other night? So you get it now. John is sitting there on the right side. He's leaning against Jesus' bosom. Now I ask you, who is next to Jesus on his left-hand side? You saw this as I put it up. Some of you may have seen it. It's none other than Judas. Why is it Judas? Prove it to me, James. Sure, you got it. It is Judas. We know it's Judas. Judas is in the place of the guest of honor. If you're taking notes, probably never heard this before. I had never known this. Judas is sitting at the place of the guest of honor. You were always on the left of the host. Always. You look at other passages of scripture. Look at this. Matthew 26, 23, and 24. He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Every single scholar and commentator, they all note two people are sharing a cup. Remember, one person laying on the inside of the bosom of the other person using your right hand. Only those two individuals would have shared that cup. Why do I bring that up? Because it's absolutely amazing that Jesus would pick Judas of all of the disciples and places him at the seat of honor. One more. Here's something else that is just wild. How about Luke 22, verse 24? Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Now, why do I say that? Let's go back again to the picture. You could see one of the pictures. This one's better. It went from most important to least important. So I said to you, John is on the far left next to Jesus, guest of honor next to him, right? You following me? And then it goes around the table to the least important. So John, the youngest of all the disciples, is to his right in a place of eminence. And then the chief apostle, the chief disciple, Peter, is all the way on the left. Now, I want you to see this. It must have been pretty darn funny when Peter is placed as the servant of the meal. If you were on the far right over there, you're the one that would serve. Yeah, I'm sure Peter was pretty happy about that. Can't you see him like trading barbs with John like across the table? And that's why Jesus is the master teacher. That's what they're arguing about. Ladies and gentlemen, saints of city on a hill, these were real human beings. I would be remiss if I walked in here and just talked about the Last Supper without bringing the history out to you because it doesn't make any sense. That's what these passages are. And then look, a little... Another passage here regarding Judas. How about this one? One more. John 13, 26 and 27. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Said that before from Matthew. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. And why do I bring this up? Why am I continuing to talk about Judas? Because I think, this is just my opinion, I really think that Jesus gave Judas every single chance, every single chance to come back into the fold. You don't have to do it, Judas. You don't have to do it. I'm seating you as the guest of honor here in what for centuries people will talk about as the Last Supper. It's going to be my last meal. He doesn't take it and he leaves and he walks away. Oh, this is the Last Supper that we have read about. And again, we think we know, but... 
we really don't. So let's go to what is really going on in the story. I told you that it's Passover, and I'm going to camp out. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn now, now that I I didn't want to move you around too much. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to look at his account of the Last Supper. And we're going to travel through this. And you can see there, starting in verse 12, and then I'm going to move down. I'm going to go down to, um, to verse 22, and I'm going to move through 31. But you see the first part here. I said to you, this is Passover. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Again, I, I know many of you in here, you know what the Passover is. But some of you don't. So let's, let's discuss that. The Passover was a time where the children of Israel commemorated every year. They commemorated that they were freed from the bondage of slavery. The mass exodus when God, you know, remember all the plagues, the ten plagues? And then God, God finally frees the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And we'll get to it even more later on with the blood on the doorpost. You probably all know that part of the story. If you don't, it's an amazing story. This is a watershed moment, the seminal moment, really, in the history of Israel. And this is what they commemorated every single year, and they still do. Actually, I'll I'll say this up front. I have a colleague at work, and he's Jewish, and he's a practicing Jew. And he really, we've had some really fascinating conversations. And I'm like, dude, I'm coming over to your house for like a Passover Seder. I'm coming over. I understand some of it, but I've never participated. And I know some of you probably have, or I haven't. I know more than you do probably about what you participated in, but I've never done it. I want to do that. How many of you, wouldn't it be really neat if we even had one here? What if we brought somebody in? I Listen, I don't speak Hebrew. I studied Hebrew. I'm not fluent in Hebrew. We brought somebody in that's really Jewish that would do that for us. Wouldn't that be a neat experience? You'd be on board for that? Absolutely. We're going to do it this co- next year. It's too late to do it now. But next year, at some point, I'd like to do it around this time of the year. I think it would be fascinating. So let's talk about the elements of, uh, of Passover. Some pictures for you. All right. You can see up here, here are the things that were actually at the Last Supper. When Jesus is there, again, I just... I'm always in awe when we really can ascertain what was going on, what was happening. Here are the things that are there. Now, the first part here I'll point to, maror, that's how you pronounce that. This would be bitter herbs that the Jews would eat. The bitter herbs, like think of horseradish. If you're at a Seder today, they would use probably horseradish. There are some Orthodox Jews, they would use real, the real bitter herbs themselves. They wouldn't even use the horseradish. They would actually take the, the, um, the root there and they would wrap it in romaine lettuce because the lettuce is actually very bitter as well. And what we do know, and I've, I, I, had to interview, I, didn't t- I had to interview a Jewish um, rabbi years ago when I was in school. We had to pick somebody of a different faith. I had to spend two days with this guy. And this is one of the conversations we had. And I'll never forget. It's indelibly etched in my mind. The guy talked about how when you eat these bitter herbs, they are so bitter, reminding you, symbolic of reminding you of what happened during Egyptian captivity, how bitter it was, how bad it was, that you would be actually crying, that tears would come down your face. You have to picture Jesus and the disciples in the upper room eating these bitter herbs, sitting there, remembering what had happened 1,300 years ago, approximately. What had happened then? This is a real event really happened. 
And then you go the exact antithesis of that right over here. Oops. The Hadassah right here would be, again, hard to see, but this is supposed to be symbolic of it was a apple, nut, uh, they used wine and cinnamon, and it was a, it was a mix, like a, like a salad, and you would eat this, and this was supposed to remind you and be symbolic of the mortar that was used for the bricks when you were working for the Egyptians, the mud that was there. That's what it was tethered to. Everybody thought that, everybody saw that, but it was very sweet. It's the exact opposite, right? You all know the bottom piece there when you see the unleavened bread and wine. I mean, that's clear. It says it in the text. Every single gospel writer talks about that. Pretty clear, right? The last thing I want you to see, obviously, is the lamb. And literally, I've always wanted to say this before, literally at this point in history, at this Passover 2,000 years ago, it literally is the silence of the lambs. It literally is the silence of the lambs. Again, I've always wanted to do that. I was excited about that. I don't recommend you see the movie, although I love the movie. It's kind of, I, I did. It's a crazy movie, but I did. But that was, I watched it when I was in high school. I'm a different person now. Not really, but... Um, so, when you look at the lamb, Josephus, the historian, says there may have been 500 lambs that were slaughtered in Jerusalem. 500,000 lambs being slaughtered. Are you kidding me? The blood... The stench, the smell was in everybody's nostrils. You could not avoid it. It's there. And there is God on his great tapestry. He is creating a picture for the ages. And he's telling the most beautiful story that has ever been told. And he wants everyone to see it. And anybody that is living 2,000 years ago that has an upfront and close and personal picture to that story, it's one they'll never forget. It's one that we can't forget. And we didn't even live back then. But this is the story that Jesus is telling. And if you, go to a, if you go to a Passover Seder today, I didn't put it up there, but you would see things like they'd have a hard-boiled egg, and that was the temple sacrifice and symbolic of the continuing cycle of life. There'd be parsley that is, uh, represents uh, springtime. There would be veg- green vegetables. I mean, I could go on and on. and get, I could literally spend a couple of Sundays. Many of you probably would you'd want to leave. But I could spend a couple of Sundays talking, really, just giving you a lot of the history. So the hardest part for the sermon was really taking some of the history out and saying, all right, uh, I don't want to bore people to death. Now, let's move down to verse 22. Let's kick this in overdrive now. 22 through 31. I'm going to read straight through. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. 
you can see there, so where are we in the actual Passover meal when you're reading this? Well, I'd like to say to you, if you're taking notes, if you start there in, in verse 22, we're actually at the third uh, cup. There, there would be four cups of wine that would be used, and I don't have time to, to go into all of them, but suffice it to say, there are four cups that would be used during the Passover. This is the third cup. How do we know we're between the third and the fourth? Because in the fourth cup, it's called the halal right here on the bottom. When it says they had sung a hymn, they would always sing, please, at your leisure this week, read Psalm 113 to 118. Read those Psalms. You'll be amazed. They did that every single time at the end of the Passover. So we know exactly this is between three and four, cups three and four. But fascinating, again, Jesus steeped in Jewish tradition, following the tradition that had been passed down to him through the years. So we know that's part of it. And now the presider, who is Jesus, would get up and he would talk about the elements. He would talk about how they were symbolic. And I've kind of mentioned that to you already. And he would usually use the words, he would use the words of Deuteronomy 26. And I'm not going to, I didn't put those up. But what I want you to understand is this message that Jesus brings is beyond radical. And you've heard this many times, the story, but please try to see it with new eyes. Because Jesus is getting up and he's basically saying, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. What was always said, this is the bread of our affliction. He's going to change it, right? Jesus is going to change it and say, this is the bread of my affliction. Now, understand you're in the room as one of the disciples. You have heard this. You know this. You know exactly what's coming. This is the bread of your affliction, not our affliction that we share together. This would have been the most radical thing the disciples ever heard during their time with Jesus. He is creating a new, he's, I mean, Passover has been passed down, but that's why I'm saying it's the first supper. He's ushering in a new kingdom. He's trying to get a message across to a people, and some of them are hard to hear. They're not going to hear what he's really trying to say, but he's saying, listen, this is the bread of my affliction. I am going to lead the ultimate exodus. Yes, Moses led an exodus. I am going to lead the ultimate exodus. I am the ultimate Moses. And yes, you were shackled. You were shackled in economic depression. You, you, um, you couldn't do what you wanted to do. I'm not just going to free you economically and socially. I'm going to free you from sin and death. And you go, I knew that already. No, no, no. Try to see it in the context of hearing it for the first time here when he is the presider over this last supper and he is telling everybody what he is ushering in. This is mind blowing. This is beyond a paradigm shift. This is revolutionary because that's who Jesus was. And then the guidelines for Passover, I I said to you before, I mentioned that I alluded to it. During the Passover, you would put the blood of the lamb, the unblemished, perfect, spotless lamb that you had for your family. I told you, 500,000, even if Josephus' estimate is a little wrong, it's still an incredible amount of people that have to get lambs. And you would take the blood and you would put it on the doorpost. Because what was that 10th plague? The first male child, right? The first male child in the home. Every single night at midnight, the angel of death was going to come on that Passover. And either it was a dead boy, a dead child, or there was a dead lamb. It was one or the other. And it's not until after this, after Passover, that's what they're commemorating. God, you had freed us. Pharaoh finally acquiesces. He finally lets them go. But it's this. It's because of the blood of the lamb. And you go again. I know this. Okay. Well, another thing I want you to see 
This is the weirdest Passover in the history of Israel. You want to know why? Did you notice how in the text that I read, I just read from Mark, but you can do your homework. Go look at Matthew. Go, go look in the other Gospels. You will not find a mention of lamb. There is no mention of lamb. Don't you find that a little peculiar? Isn't that the biggest piece of the Passover? Right? Wouldn't you think? Well, there are two ways to look at it. Conjecture. No one knows for sure, but this is my opinion, and I backed up by a lot of scholars. One way to look at it is that they said, you know what? It's everybody knows that the lamb would be there at the table. You know Passover. Every Jew knows what's on that table. They mention other things. They don't mention it. The other way to look at it is that maybe they purposely didn't include it because they said, you know what? We're not going to put lamb on the table because the lamb of God is at the table. Did you get that? There's no lamb on the table. The lamb of God was there for them to see. And he was going to lay his life down as a living sacrifice for all to see. <laughs> and that's why it's beyond weird when you see that. There's, this, there's a story looking at his salvific work on the cross. There was a story in National Geographic some years ago. Uh, there was a terrible fire in uh, Yellowstone National Park. And some forest rangers are trekking up to survey the damage after this. And one of these gentlemen, one of these rangers comes upon a, a bird, like literally petrified in ash and like kind of like perched statuesquely like at the, at the base of a tree. So there is this, this bird that is there and he has a stick and he takes the stick and he kind of like he hits the bird and knocks it over. And with that, scurry out three little chicks. And what's amazing about that is that there was a mother that said, you know what? I am not going to leave. I'm not going to fly away. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spread my wings and I'm going to protect my little children. Well, there was one, friends, who said this. He said in Matthew 23, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. But he did it anyway. And he paid the price with his life. He was burnt to a crisp. And on the cross of Calvary, you don't have some bloodthirsty God. You have a God who said, I want to show you how much I love you. I am going to send myself to you. Look at every other major world religion. You can look at Muhammad and how he died. You can look at Buddha. You can look at Confucius. The list goes on. There is not one that said, I will lay down my life for my people. Only Jesus Christ. There is none other. It's the only one. So what I, want to, what I want to finish with, and it, give me a little while, how, can we, how do we appropriate this transforming power in our lives? How does that happen? And the first thing I would want to say is just talk about appropriating food. You could have, I mentioned to you at the beginning of the sermon, remember the guy that was executed and he has that huge plate of food that's there and he says he doesn't want to eat it? It's not good enough for, up, for us to come to the table to come to this meal and say, oh my gosh, doesn't it look beautiful? It's gorgeous. Look at the, oh, look at this. Look at that. Look at the steak or look at whatever. You pick any meal you want. It's not good enough to just look at it and study it and stare at it and sit back and bask in its beauty. We have to partake. We have to actually eat it. 
Jesus says at the beginning in verse 22, he doesn't just say, this is my body. He says, take it, take this, take it. You want it. There's passion when he's saying that. You have to take it. And we can't say, you know what? I took it. I had a meal in 2010. I'm not hungry anymore. And you're still picking food out of your teeth. I ate already. I ate a couple years ago. I'm not hungry anymore. No, no, no. We are to, you know what remembering literally means? You know what remembering means? It means to continue, in the Greek, to continually do it on a regular basis. He is looking for us to take it up and appropriate. He's looking for us to take this on a daily basis or a weekly basis. There are no rules, but we're supposed to be taking it and appropriating it for our lives. And there is incredible power in it. And the problem is, when we look at the table, sometimes we say, oh, I've, done, I've taken the table probably in my life over a thousand times. It's routine. It's ritual. I'm telling you, the power of Jesus Christ and his slain blood on Calvary, he has not lost any of his power to change your life. Whether it's your health, whether it's your finances, whether it's wayward kids, whether it's what, your job. Well, I don't know what it is. Whatever your issue is, I know there's still enough power at that table to save your life and to move mountains in your life. He still moves stones. But the problem is, as I I keep alluding to, because I want you to keep hearing this, we have become so used to it. I've heard it a million times. I've heard it so many times. I'll give you a story. When I was in, uh, I had to take a seminary class. This is well over a decade ago, and I had to travel down to Virginia. And this is the first time I was traveling down there, and I, I didn't know where I was staying. And I talked to some people at the registrar, and they said, look, there are people that have homes down here, and uh, they, you know, they, they put students up. So it's the summertime, school ended. I'm like, how bad can this be? I'm just going to, I'm going to literally be in class for a full week. I'm not going to be around these people. So I fly, I get on a plane, fly down there, get in my car, show up at the house. No more than 30 minutes. I'm sitting in the living room talking to these people, very nice people, the kids talking to everybody, that it sounds like a freight train right outside the house. What I didn't even realize, maybe 50 feet away from the house, behind the house, there was a train track, right? When the train is like starting, I'm starting to hear noise and I'm going, do these people hear the same noise that I hear right now? And I was startled and they didn't move. And I, afterward I said, oh, it's a, do you live right near a train? I said, none of you moved. Are you, are you, uh, are you I guess you're used to it. It's just normal. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we don't even hear it anymore. And I said, what? And here's the best, but um, this is like a totally tangential, but not really pertinent to the to the sermon but so they put me in this bed right you have to hear this I, i've never told did I, I don't even know if i ever told you this i'm in a bed that's maybe the size of this table it's for jameson jameson could sleep in the bed my feet are hanging off the bed i'm like joe pesci in the middle of the night in that movie my cousin Vinny, because the trains keep coming and i get boop, boop, like two o'clock in the morning i'm sweating it's hot that morning i'm like i really don't feel well i'm, I'm going home i didn't go home i went to a hotel couldn't take it but anyway, why am I telling you that story? Because they, they, they didn't even hear the train anymore. But I heard it. How often we hear the story and we say, I, I've been there, done that. And I'm trying to tell you, see it with new eyes today. And if you look at verses 24 and 25, let me put those back up. Um, right, okay, right here. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. How radical this is. 
He is making an unconditional blood oath, which was something that was always done in ancient culture. That's what was done. When they heard Jesus say these words, they are perplexed. They are shocked. They are mystified. They cannot believe that Jesus has said these words to them. Now, I said to you, it happened many times. I just, for example, in Acts 23, there are a group of people that are so mad at Paul that they say they will not eat or drink until they actually kill him. It's a blood oath. Until he dies, we will not stop. Isn't that's a little, that's, that's, you feel good about yourself, right, Paul? Like people chasing you until I die. If I, you know, crazy. So they're going to keep going. That's what Jesus is saying when he says this here. Now, let me give you a little history of blood oaths. A blood oath was you would actually take an animal or could be animals. You would take an animal and you would kill that animal. You would sacrifice it and they would set up what was known as a blood path. And you may say, whoa, a lot, pretty gory. Why do we have to have all this blood, right? I don't really like it. Well, that's how important it is to God. You see, we can't just turn the other way when sins are committed. God is so holy and God is perfect. God says, no, that will not do at solving the whole sin problem. But it's a picture. It's a type of what I'm ultimately going to do. So they would take these animals and they would sacrifice them. There's a case in Exodus 24. There's a fascinating place where Moses sacrifices an animal and he takes the blood and he sprinkles it over the people. And what do the people say? They say, Lord, we are going to obey you. May our blood be spilled if we don't. And here's what you did in an ancient covenant. This is what would happen when the blood was spilled. It was a sign that if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may you do to me that it, as just what happened to this animal, may my blood be spilled. That's how powerful it was. Everybody in ancient culture, you would have known. And they knew certainly when Jesus is saying this, what he is going to do. But there is one weird story in the Bible, which doesn't make any sense because you have to see whenever they made these blood oaths, there is one in Genesis 15 with Abraham. And Abraham says, God, yeah, you've chosen us to be your people, but how do, I know, how do I know you're really going to bless us? So God tells him, I'm paraphrasing the story, get some animals, sacrifice these animals, and set up what I'm showing you here, an artist's rendering of what a blood path was. And I didn't say this, but this is, it's very important that you see this. Anytime you made a blood oath like this, it was always the servant would do it. The master didn't do it. The lesser person, not the superior one, the lesser person, the inferior one, would always be the one to do this covenant. So Abraham, it's the only time in the Bible where it's a little strange. So Abraham is waiting, and this is what the Bible says. I didn't put it up there, but in, in Genesis 15... It's very dark. God wakes Abraham up and, he's, and it says, Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Abraham doesn't walk through the blood path. It's the only time. It's God saying, listen, you're not going to walk through the blood path. Abraham had to have been sitting there after he sees this theophany. A theophany is a manifestation of God's glory. Happened a lot in the Old Testament. And as God goes through in this flaming torch, and as he passes through, there is one man that is sitting there probably pale as a ghost because he knows he can't keep up his end of the bargain. He knows he can't be perfect. He knows it's impossible. And God says, you don't have to go through because I'm going to solve the sin problem. Thousands of years before Jesus Christ ever went to a cross, God was speaking a message and he wants you to hear it today. 
Oh, I love, I love, I just love when he paints these pictures and he tells these stories for us to see. Now, look at when he says he's, when I'm saying he's unconditionally committed to blessing us. Look where it says, he says, I'm not going to eat or drink until I get you into the kingdom of God. Are you kidding me? He is making a blood oath that there is coming a day that he's going to stretch out his arms. And he is not going to stop coming after human beings forever. He is coming and he's coming like a locomotive and he is not going to slow down and he's going to keep going and keep going until he can get the pearl of great price. He can get his bride. That's who we are to him. And he's sitting there and he's saying, oh, don't be mistaken. Don't be mistaken until I can have at the great banquet. There is coming a day when we will eat. And yes, we will drink at this banquet. There will be wine. People aren't going to be inebriated. They're not going to be drunk, but there'll actually be feasting. I'm sorry if you're religious. There will be real feasting and eating and drinking and people will be in a festive mood. People will be joyous. That's what you're looking for. That's what you can look forward to one day. No matter what is going on in your life, he promises there will come a day probably sooner than we think that the trumpets will sound and he will come down on the Mount of Olives and we will see him for who he really is. He came as the lamb, but he will ultimately come back as the lion. He is coming, friends. And then look what Peter says in verse 27. Well, Jesus first says, but you guys are all going to fail me. You're going to fail me. Because Peter, what is Peter saying in verse 31? Look what Peter is saying. You have to see it. In verse 31, Peter is saying, but he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter is trying to take the blood oath. You missed that. You read it. You, how would you see that? He is making a blood oath back to Jesus. Jesus is like, look, it's not going to happen. You don't understand. It's not about your commitment to me. It's my commitment to you. It's the object of your faith, Peter. Ah, it's me. Put your faith in me. You can't do it on your, on your own. It's not the quality of your faith. It's me, the object. I can do it for you. And I'm coming and I'm going to a cross. It's not if I die. I'm dying to die for you, disciples. I'm dying to die for all mankind. Oh, that's who the Savior is. That's what's going on at the Last Supper. That's the story we see here. And then Megan mentioned it before. How about community? The need to be in community? Here's another great piece from the Last Supper. Easy to miss. The Last Supper was a meal that was always shared with your family. You didn't share it alone. Do you notice? James and John, they're not with Zebedee. They're not with their father and mother. They're not with Salome. How about the tax collector? Matthew? They're all here. They're not with their families. Jesus is is telling us, giving us a message here that, hey, look, I'm pulling you away from your family because when you're part of this community, yeah, you have your brothers and sisters, you have your siblings and you have you share many experiences with them and they're wonderful and you have tight bonds. But when you gather around this, when you gather around this cross and you come to this place, I'm sorry, but that is stronger than even those relationships because it's based on me. And that, that's what was amazing to us as a couple. If I can speak to that, and I didn't even get up on Wednesday night. There was one night that we talked about. And we walked yesterday and she said, you know what I was so most moved by? There was one night. And I said, I bet you it's the same night I had. We had 
Kristen, uh, we had Kristen Walcott, Tabitha Walcott come over. Uh, right? They didn't even, people didn't even, they didn't call, they just came over. They stopped by. We had Michelle Knipe come over with like breastfeeding equipment. Like just, no one, she didn't, she just knew we needed something, came over. Keith Robinson's coming over with meals. There were, this is just one day. We were bombarded with text messages. People brought food over. People constantly reached out to us. People were praying for us. We received emails. I'll never forget. It's, we're usually on the other side. As a pastor, you're usually on the other side of things. To sit back and to see the community of God. That's what this is. C.S. Lewis, he says it so well. He says, what binds us together is not common education or common race, common income levels or common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, anything of that sort. Christians come together because they have been loved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who now love one another for the sake of the cross. You would not be here. And I always think of that. We're we're here together in this place. We share our lives together because of what he did, not because of what we did. Think about it. Otherwise, we would probably never know each other. The community, you can't make it on your own. Stop trying. Next week is Easter. Next week is Easter. Let me be totally transparent with you. I don't usually like preaching on Easter. Ooh, did he just say that? Yeah, I don't. Because there are priesters, a lot of priesters that come in. I love them. Don't hear. Listen to me. Hear my heart. Listen. I, I say it like it is. You don't like it. That's the way it is. People that come for Christmas and Easter. I would never do it, but I wanted. I told. I was. Like, I was with some guys the other day, and I said, "You know, it would be great if I got up and say, hey, I haven't seen some of you. I hope you had a great Christmas." Like, a lot of people are going to come in, and I, we haven't seen them since Christmas. I love them. I love them. I want them to come to know who Jesus is in a real way. But I'm being honest with you. The, the Christianity is not about showing up to church once in a blue moon, coming twice a year. How would you feel if you and me, right? You enjoy, oh, it's great. You, get to, you bring the gospel on Easter. Listen, it's the hardest Sunday of the year to preach and bring the gospel. The hardest. Be praying for that. Because I don't get it. I did it like, I'm not getting up and just giving some little, oh, some wishy-washy word and some little thing and make people laugh. No, no I'm going to challenge people. To challenge people and get into the word and challenge them because that's what God is looking for in these in these in these last days. That's what He's looking for. But community, anything you want to say on that? You sure? Okay. The cross puts us in community. It does what we can't do on our own. And then the last thing, expectancy. Every time you take the Lord's table, you should be hearing God say in your ear. I'm going to get you there. No matter how awful life is right now, no matter how bad you think things really are, I'm unconditionally committed to getting you there. Unconditionally committed. He will not stop at anything to bring you in. Don't be satisfied with where you're at. One of the things, I, I don't know, I preach it all, don't be satisfied. I'm not satisfied. We can't be satisfied with where we're at. What we have of God now is not good enough for what we're going to need in the future. We need more. It's time to dig into his word. It's time to dig into this community. It's time to rally together and see what God wants to do in our midst. You believe in that? Lord, as we come to this table this morning, Lord, I'm overcome with thanksgiving for the unconditional commitment, the blood oath you made 2,000 years ago that night in the upper room. 
I'm, I'm overjoyed. Words, I'm speechless <laughs> at what you did and how much you loved us and how easily you could have just said, I'm not going to do this. I don't have to go to the... You could have called legions of angels down to take you off that cross. But you saw each one of us. You looked through time and you said, I love you. I love you. You loved all of us. Father, help us to believe that there's real power in this table. Help us to come up this morning with real expectancy, dependency, and knowing that you are reliable and you haven't lost any of your power and you still want to move in the midst of lives. Lord, do something. Let people really feel it, Lord. I'm not looking for emotionalism, but let us really feel your power as we take this table today. May it be different. We don't usually hear whole messages just about your, t- your word, your t- I mean your table, Father, but this week, this holy week, as we focused on the Passover and that Last Supper. Make it just real in our hearts. Do what only you can do. My feeble words can't do it. Only the power of your spirit can. Amen. Ushers. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.